Welcome to the Drill Down, business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson, and on September 24, we have episode number 103. Just ahead, we're going to take a special look at the business problem of inflation. In other words, how much can companies jack prices? We're going to look at the approach from Nike and Vail Resorts, different businesses with interesting ideas. Plus, Costco has a unique solution to the shipping problem. Get a bigger boat. Three of them. We'll explain. And the quiet problem of electric vehicles, dead lithium batteries, and the company that might benefit from that problem. My guests, Lifecycle co-founders, AJ Kochar and Tim Johnston. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the podcast anytime, the Drill Down podcast, by saying to your smart speaker, hey, smart speaker, play the Drill Down podcast. You'll like what you hear. And the drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We're going to explain the business stories behind stocks and the move and the latest, most important business stories of the day with executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, what do you got? Corey, we got to start with Evergrande. Evergrande's global bondholders didn't receive interest payments yesterday. The Chinese property developer was on the hook to make over $83 million in coupon payments by Thursday. Reports say that that did not happen. The company could make payments belatedly, and it has a 30-day grace period to make before bondholders can call for a default. A missed payment would set the stage for what would be the largest ever dollar bond default by a company in Asia. So this is something where something that a lot of people are watching. Yeah, and yet, yet you know, the the supposedly these stories about why the market sells off are such baloney all the time. Like the, the idea that one thing caused a bunch of people to sell everything just seems like people connecting dots that aren't connected. I mean, here this thing that everyone was supposedly worried about earlier in the week and selling stocks for that reason happens. And stocks go up for the day. So I, I I just, you know, it's a big deal for this company. It's a big deal for the biggest, most indebted developer of land in the world. Number two, let's move on to ports. Congestion in U.S. supply chains is raising shipping costs and contributing to inventory shortages. We've been talking a lot about that on this show. But despite pressure to help for help from the White House, the port of Los Angeles is holding back on extending its gate hours Instead, the port is focusing on boosting efficiency in operations while coping with a surge in imports. By contrast, neighboring port of Long Beach did move to the 24-hour gate operations like the Biden administration wants. I'm going to guess the port now is how to run the port better than the White House. That's just me. We will see. We will I was see. A a lot very of cargo much ships entertained lined up. a few hours ago. I was, I was uh, walking about the windows and I saw this giant uh, ship go by and there's this great website that you can actually look out if you see these container ships and see which ship is passing by um, and and do a, I did a little research on it in my sort of 30 seconds of looking at this giant ship in the in the port of uh, San Francisco there are tons of them but the polar adventure sailed by me and it's a it's the rare ship with a US flag on it uh, had gone from Valdez Alaska 
to the Benicia port and the Chevron station there and is now parking itself um, in the San Francisco Bay. But the, the ships in the bay are just, there's an enormous number of ships kind of stuck uh, waiting to get to, uh, get to a port, get to a dock and unload containers. Similar things with uh, oil tankers and, uh, and ships with dry goods. Hence the request from the White House to uh, start unloading 24 hours a day. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, finally, let's go on to Disney. We're going to stay here in Los Angeles for this last story. Walt Disney Company has filed a flurry of lawsuits seeking to invalidate copyright termination notices served by artists and Wait, did you want to stay in L.A. because I went back to San Francisco? So you're like, is this like the fight of California now? I mentioned something in SF. Like, no, no, no. No, no, no. Hollywood's much more important than oil. That's very SF of you to think that. That's it's very LA if you'd be so it's defensive. It's kind of funny to think that. Don't Anywho, be defensive when I say this. Am I the one being defensive? That's the way to start any good conversation <laughs> with your spouse, by the way. Don't be defensive when I say this, but. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but I digress. Walt Disney Company Copyrights? has filed a flurry of lawsuits seeking to invalidate copyright termination notices it's received uh, by from artists, artists and illustrators uh, involved with marquee characters like Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Thor. In short, Disney wants to keep its complete rights to Marvel characters, which it currently owns. The reclamation attempts Disney is fighting stem from a provision in copyright law that, under certain conditions, allows authors or their heirs to regain ownership of a product after a after a given number of years. So, wait, so Disney, the copyright course, termination notices? Happen. I don't know what a copyright termination notice is. So, if, so if if, if Jack Kirby did some drawings of Iron Man and wants to keep those drawings and sell them, he can, or get well, Jack Kirby is no longer with us, but is that what this is about? Yeah, after a certain number of years, there's a provision that allows if you, let's say that you created Iron Man to, you know, reclaim your time as the creator of Iron Man and maybe get some money for that. That's what this huh. is. That's a very, very Cliff Notes version of what's going on here. And Disney, of course, um, wants to retain ownership of the rights it has to all all things Marvel. So that's, we'll see how this plays out. This has been going on since the seventies when you had characters. Well, you had this with a uh, Howard the duck, which also became a movie where there's a big battle behind the creators of that and who owned it. And in fact, was it a, was it a caricature about a Disney character being in a Marvel comic? It was, it was a non-going thing about what creators own when they're working for somebody else. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Costco. Costco trades under COST. Cost shares rose 3% today and they've gained 34% in a year. What's new with Costco? Well, um, Costco reported earnings and they reported uh, what I thought was a really strong uh, quarter. Uh, their, their, their sales growth, 16%, um, if you take out gas and uh, foreign exchange, which is just super strong. With uh, gas and foreign exchange, 18%. Comp sales for their stores up 15% also, uh, bigger in Canada, um, uh, up to 20% in Canada. E-commerce up 10%. Let's remember we're 11%. Remember where we were a year ago, right? Where you had uh, people in the pandemic buying in bulk, buying for home, a great time for Costco. Um, and one of the reasons things are better is inflation. And they're just seeing prices come up and they're raising prices. Interesting stuff, though, because they're having trouble getting stuff and they're having trouble getting all kinds of things. They're seeing inflation, yes, in labor, inflation in computer chips, inflation in oil, inflation in chemicals. But wow, the price increases on items shipped across the ocean is just huge. They said they actually had a little litany of things during the conference call. They said they were paying 
six times more some of their containers, or sorry, some of their customers paying six times, 600% more for containers and for shipping. The price increases of pulp and paper goods, right? How many people were buying toilet paper and paper towel and uh, racing into Costco, running through Costco, trying to buy it a year and a half ago? Well, those items up now, 4% and 8%, that's a big increase. Forget the 600% of container and shipping prices. But containers, boy, that is the big thing they were talking about. They are taking all kinds of steps to mitigate those costs of container shipping, including getting their own boats. They've actually chartered ocean vessels. Check this out. Uh, we've also chartered three ocean vessels for the next year to transport containers between Asia and the U.S. and Canada. And we've leased uh, several thousand containers uh, for use on these ships. Every ship can carry uh, 800 to 1,000 containers at a time, and we'll make approximately 10 deliveries uh, during the course of the next year. So think about that. If they can do 10 deliveries of a minute, what called 900 containers per ship three times, it's 27,000 containers that they're going to be able to deliver all on their own. That's just an enormous uh, um, Costco-only effort by chartering their own boats. Uh, that is a very Jaws way to fix this problem. They got a bigger boat. I, I love it. Yeah, exactly. One way to do it. And full disclosure, I am an executive member at Costco. My, my Costco card says executive on it, and it makes That's me very proud. Is that, is that really it? It's really a thing. It's really One of my ex-girlfriends. Oh, God told me that, that should we ever get married, she was never, ever setting foot in Costco. Why? It's, it's, it's bliss. She was fancy. It's my happiest place going up and down those Costco aisles. Okay. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Nike. Nike trades under NKE. Shares fell 6% today, but they've gained 19% in a year. What's going on with uh, Nike? Well, I want to talk about, they reported a quarter good quarter, whatever. And, and, but, but some guidance about prices and stuff, but they had an interesting conversation on the conference call about what to do about raising prices because they can raise prices and they need to raise prices. And obviously companies that raise prices a lot can take in more money. But I was thinking today about a company I once, uh, I think it was short the stock called Houston wire and copper. And I was trying to understand how their business work. And the CEO told me that they had an operation of this company that looked at copper prices in real time. And if you were a customer wanting to buy a whole bunch of copper wire and you call up and ask for a quote, they will give you a price for right then. And if you call back an hour later, the price is going to be different if the price of copper had changed. They constantly change their prices all day long based on the price of copper. And their customers were used to that. So customers would make short-term order, orders usually and they would make those orders frequently because the price would change so often. That's what their customer was used to. That is not what Nike customers are used to. So when asked by analysts during today's conference call about prices and how much price they can, can take from their customers and what consumers expect from them and what their relationship might be if they jack prices and jack prices and jack prices again, or they raise them quite a bit, it was a very interesting look at what the customer dynamic is and how they think of that Here's CFO Matt Friend talking about kind of the long-term relationship they have with the customer and how that could become alienated if they raise the average selling price, the ASP, really dramatically just by pissing off the customer and how they're trying to use the wholesalers, use their own retail operations 
and think about all the price points in which a customer experiences Nike before they just raise prices and screw up that longstanding relationship. We have a longstanding relationship with our consumer. And so we take a long-term view to these types of decisions. And so the price increases that we've implemented in the second half are in the low single-digit range. And we feel it's appropriate given the, the, the marketplace we're, we're, we're operating in and um, those other factors that I referenced, you know, considering we've got rising input costs and other factors that are, that are impacting our business. But I think it's really important not to drive past the fact that we continue to see strong growth in ASPs across the whole marketplace driven by higher full price realization, as we've been talking about for several quarters, and lower markdowns. And leveraging the capabilities of identifying our inventory, knowing where we want to put it, putting it in the path of the consumer, optimizing it between ourselves uh, and our our, our physical uh, locations, our digital locations, and increasingly providing that endless access to some of our wholesale, uh, to some of our most strategic wholesale partners, um, all of the, these things are contributing to a higher level of full price realization across the marketplace. And so we do believe that this is the, a base from where we want to operate as opposed to a moment in time. And that's driving profitability for Nike at a moment that, um, that where there's lots of, of disruption. So I, I thought there was kind of an interesting look at maybe why they're not just jacking prices like crazy right now but they are thinking about what the rest of the industry is doing to raise the average selling price of the things that they sell. Corey, what is your next drill down? Vail Resorts. Are you, are you a skier, snowboarder, Isaac? I don't, I've known you so long and I don't know this. Uh, not a snowboarder, but I'm a skier. Yeah. And Vail Resorts, you go to some of the Vail Resorts? I think I've been to a Vail Resort once or twice. There are more and more of them. Vail Resorts trades under... MTN stands for mountain shares rose 7% today and they've gained 57% a year. What's new with Vail? 57%. Think of that. That's a fantastic rise. Yeah. 7% today is huge, but so is the 18% the stocks up in the last week or so. So they announced earnings today mm-hmm. and the earnings were great. And the stock has moved so much in the last week. I'm not saying there was insider trading or self care for those who might've known. I'm just saying the stock went nuts before we got to this point really in the last few days. Um, and uh, this is in spite of the fact that there are closures in Australia. There are where they own a uh, resort. Uh, there's, there had been closures at Whistler, Blackcomb. Uh, have you been up there? That's a fantastic place to ride. I left part of my, uh, broke, broke a, broke, what did I break there? I broke a wrist there. I tend to have injuries snowboarding, but I've been snowboarding a long time. I love Let Whistler, me guess Blackcomb. you're with an ex-girlfriend. I actually was not, all right? Oh, okay. Nor was I engaging in digital transformation. But there I was. I was working on a story for CNBC. It was a long time ago. Nonetheless, Mm -hmm. uh, Whistler Blackcomb, awesome. Uh, That place was really hard to get to for travelers. Uh, And then some of us then later closed. They've announced some improvements there, but they're also putting a lot of money into the resorts. And they're seeing a big surge in ticket sales in advance of a season. Um, And also worth remembering, some places like California last year had – Really lousy snow. But uh, these guys are seeing big advances in ticket sales resulting in a really big quarter for them, in part because they lowered prices. Back to the same conversation they were having at Nike. How much do you charge a customer and what does it do to your long-term relationship? The company's about to promote their, or has announced the promotion 
of their chief marketing officer, Kirsten Lynch, to become the next CEO. That takes place in a few weeks, but she was had a lot to say on the conference call today. Here is a Kirsten Lynch talking about all the factors that led them to decrease prices, a 20% price reduction. Now it's actually leading to more sales. It's really interesting. Check this out. I think it's hard to parse out, as you highlighted, Jeff, exactly what all the different dynamics are. I certainly am uh, encouraged by so many different factors moving in our favor in terms of the strategy that we put in place on the 20% price reduction and what we had intended. And I think two really uh, important dynamics that are particularly encouraging is new and people trading up. So bringing new people into the program and then trade up, meaning people are taking the discount and spending the discount on a higher level pass or more days. How much that's being impacted beyond the 20% price reduction is is hard to know and parse out, but I certainly think that the 20% price reduction, as well as the incredible network of resorts that we have and the investments that we've made into those resorts and the guest experience, uh, have to be the the primary driver of the uh, business impact. So again, it, it's totally different businesses, the exact same issue. What do you do with price to build a long-term relationship with your customer? It doesn't matter if you're Nike or your Vail Resorts or any of the businesses our listeners are in right now, you're thinking about those issues right now as raw material costs are increasing. All right, well, coming up next, we're going to talk about that dirty little secret. Yeah, you spent $90,000 on your Tesla. Did you know the battery's only going to last for a certain number of years and miles? What do you do to replace it? What's that going to cost? And what company might benefit from that? The company is Lifecycle. We're going to talk to the co-founders, AJ Kochar and Tim Johnston, right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled, technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Indeed. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and pay only for quality candidates who have the meet the must-have requirements that you have right now. Don't just hope for the perfect candidate. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. With Indeed assessments, you can choose from 135 skill tests to help make sure you're finding applications for people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined and one and a half times more hires than even internal referrals. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to get great talent fast. Get started right now. Drill Down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade the job post at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. That's right, a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. That's Indeed.com slash Drill Down. Offer valid through September 30 terms and conditions apply. And welcome back to the Drill Down podcast. As promised, we've got the guys running Lifecycle. Really interesting, I'm going to call it a fledgling company, CEO uh, Ajay Kochar joins us as well as Executive Chairman Tim Johnston. No relation because my last name is Johnson, not Johnston, but so close. And, and so you guys close. are in Canada, so close to a place that I lived a lot in Rochester, New York. Um, glad to have you guys on. Um, why don't I start with you, uh, uh, your co-founders, uh, Ajay, uh, you're the CEO, I'll let you go first. 
What is Lifecycle? Yeah, happy to, Corey, and great to be on. Look, so Lifecycle, we're a lithium-ion battery recycling company. And I think taking a step back, you know, folks will realize that we're living in a time with a once-in-a-generation shift to electrification. And I think consumers, when you buy EVs and you read out there in the zeitgeist, there's often this issue tossed out around the end of life of batteries. And it's interesting, well, even on Twitter, you'll, you'll see I'd people- I'd argue rarely. I would argue rarely. I think very few people realize that when you get a Tesla, it's got a battery that's going to die in about five years. And yeah, I mean, got it's a, probably- got a, a massive a It's massive probably expense, a smaller yeah. universe of people, but it's interesting, even on Twitter, every so often, we, there's one person who's like, is this going to be like a hazardous material, big landfill issue? And it's interesting because we know because then they'll say, no, look at life cycle. So <laughs> what, what we're doing is- solving that issue of not only end-of-life batteries, but as you make batteries, getting back those critical materials like urban mining and bringing them back to new lithium batteries again. Our background, we're both engineers. Tim will get into it. But we come from the lithium space, making these materials historically from primary sources, mining and refining. And we've chosen five years ago to leave that and do this on the secondary, the recycling side, the urban mining side. So more on that to come, but that's a brief well, and, 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 and Tim, lie, for those just listening to the word lie cycle, lie cycle is just, as we all remember from high school chemistry, or I don't, but uh, LI is the, is the periodic, is the symbol for, for on the periodic table for okay. lithium. Um, and uh, so it's lie dash cycle is how it's spelled. Um, talk to me about how you two came together to sort of think about this uh, exciting take on recycling old junk. Yeah, no worries. And so, I mean, I started working in the lithium space back in the late 2000s. Uh, we both come from the same engineering background, both used to work in the engineering consulting space, helping clients develop these assets. And it was a little bit frustrating because, you know, we could see that there was a lot of demand for these materials. I mean, you think back to what was happening in the EV world in the late 2000s, there wasn't a lot. So we saw a huge amount of growth in the industry. Uh, over the coming decade. But what wasn't clear was what is going to happen to all this end-of-life material. And, and those who are conscious about it, I mean, yes, consumers are, but those who also produce the vehicles, produce the phones, produce the laptops, they were becoming increasingly concerned about what's going to happen with all this material. And so we, uh, after working together for, for a long time, uh, we both decided to, to leave, uh, to pursue something that, to be frank, in 2016, a lot of people told us that this isn't a problem for today, that this problem is going to be an issue in a decade. Uh, but of course, you know, having been through the project development life cycle before, we knew that in order to be ready for when this eventual need was going to happen, that, uh, that we had to start early. Uh, so what is, the, what is the process, Jim, yeah, so said to you? Yeah, we have a two-stage process. We call it the spoken hub model. Right, which is all uh, over your financial documents and your press releases. Go on. Yeah, exactly. We, we tried to simplify it so people can understand it, but really it's a smart way of going about it. Traditionally, what you would do is you would take batteries and you would move them long distances to a centralized location to process them. And there's inefficiencies with that process. We can get into that separately. But what we decided is we said, well, hold on a second. That's actually a really inefficient way to do it. What we need to do is find a way where we can process batteries close to where they're being generated which is largely close to population centers, close to where batteries are made, et cetera. So it had to be small footprint, had to be environmentally friendly, had to be economically viable. That's our spoke facilities. We take those batteries in, we produce intermediate materials. The key intermediate material in this industry is what we call black mass. 
Black mass is just a very, very unimaginative way to describe the active materials, the nickel, cobalt, lithium, graphite, that exists within right, the battery. Lithium doesn't exist by itself in physical form, right? You're, they're, they're, you can't, can't grab a handful of lithium. Not in, I mean, in a battery, it's in a salt form. So right. they add things like lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide, and they basically move it into the, into the cathode state to make the active material. And then those ions move backwards and forwards, but they still stay within it. Separately, you can make like lithium metal, for example, but in general, it's all mixed together in the battery. And so what we do is we then at the spoke facilities produce this active material, black mass, which is just a black looking material. And then we're, at that point, we've separated out the plastic material. So that allows the plastics to go off to separate recycling sources. Uh, we've also separated out the metallic content, the aluminum, the copper, the steel, and we're able to send them off to local recyclers. We then take that intermediate material, the black mass, and move it to a centralized facility, which is what we call our hub. That's the refining part of it, where we take the black mass and we convert it back into the chemicals that go back into new batteries. And what is it, uh, and I, I joked about my memories of chemistry class from my days in Rochester, because no, there was there are no memories left from those classes or much of <laughs> my time there. Um, the, what is it about a lithium-ion battery that degrades so it can't be recharged, but the physical material can be reused? Yeah, so, so what's happening over the life of a battery is a couple of things. The primary thing is that the graphite on the anode side is breaking down. And so... The graphite is a physical structure. Think about it as a bookcase. And you're basically moving the lithium ions in and out. And so what happens over time is that those bookshelves start to collapse. They age because they're being used and they start collapsing, which reduces the number of places that you can put the book or a lithium ion on, uh, in that sort of structure, which reduces the capacity of the battery to hold a charge. So as the battery is degrading, and physically uh, breaking down inside, you're losing the ability to hold charge. And it's now, not that the lithium uh, itself is degrading, but the no. things holding the lithium essentially is degrading. That's holding the into place. The books are whole. To, right. The books are yeah. old. The books are still there. They can't yeah, be recovered. Exactly. So, 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 just, so let, let's take that further. So what is the, the process for that? How expensive is that? How does it compare to the cost of just mining new lithium? Yeah, so this is a common question. When we started this business, like, there's been a lot of material out there in articles saying, oh, recycling will never be as profitable as mining or won't be as low cost. I think just to take a step back, like think about your phone battery and your mobile phone. That is the culmination, safe technology, generally speaking, lithium ion that's in an ED. Right. It's the culmination of a bunch of refining and concentration of these materials, lithium, nickel, cobalt in one place. So think of that versus mining. You have to go to say uh, Chile for lithium, and you're, you know, pumping it out of the aquifers in the ground, and it's being concentrated up, and then you have to refine it, right? So that is one example. Cobalt, and nickel have their own supply chains. It's expensive, right? And so what we're doing is we're consolidating that supply into one basket, and so inherently already it's easier, right? You're not having to go to the remote edges of the earth to get material. Further, it's way higher concentration, right? So in the earth, it might be say X percent, or maybe X point zero 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 percent, then what we're getting, it's typically 10 to 100 times that in terms of concentration. So we have to process less material to get the same product. Bottom line is, it's a way more efficient way to recycle lithium batteries and recover these materials 
relative to mining and refining. So we can definitely be cheaper. It has to inherently be that way because of those factors I just mentioned. Not to mention, of course, the much better environmental footprint, which is often the knock that people have on EVs and lithium-ion batteries is, Ooh, what about the mining and the overall life cycle analysis of that? And it's not wrong. Uh, and this is one of the ways to drive down both the cost and improve the sustainability of EVs and lithium-ion batteries. When, as you um, grow this business, why are cars so important? As you point out, there are lots of batteries and lots of years of batteries in computers, in desktops, uh, or in laptops particularly, and in phones. And there are a lot more phones and laptops than there are, not only are there electric cars, and there may ever be in electric cars. Why are electric cars so important to this, this story? Well, and, and indeed, yeah. why is this business so nascent if there's been an opportunity to recycle yeah. computer batteries and phone yeah. batteries for a long time? No, it's a good question. I'll address it today and then, and then the future. So I think, yeah, for sure. I mean, above ground, there's an amazing urban mine that can be tapped into. We get a ton of, you know, different mobile device batteries. People should, you know, just maybe rattle off a few things and you can now think about your house. Micromobility, scooters, lawnmowers, appliances, uh, automated vacuum system in your house, whatever it might be. They all use lithium-ion batteries. E-bikes, I can keep going on and on and on. So those are all available for us to be recycled and we do take those every day. However, what I will say has been a challenge there has been collection. And, you know, there is this proverbial drawer that people have at home of old devices and IT uh, devices that, you know, doesn't necessarily make its way back to being recycled. So that's been a hurdle, um, but it's getting better in some places. But by comparison, if you look in a, uh, an EV, you know, in a electric vehicle and the pack they're in, What's actually in that are thousands of lithium ion batteries assembled in a smart way in a pack. And that's actually the chassis of the vehicle. So if you're sitting in the vehicle, it's actually what's below you, like a skateboard. And that is the equivalent of thousands of devices per vehicle. So actually over time, the relative mass, the relative proportion, the relative demand in the market is orders of magnitude more than what's been in consumer devices. Uh, and that's the opportunity here. And one thing I just want to, just last point on that for people to help understand, you know, to Tim's opening comment about, you know, people were telling us, hey, this is end of the decade problem. What are you guys doing? Like, are you silly? Like, why are you developing this business now? Well, one of the biggest sources of material we have now and the next five years plus is actually scrap. So as you make batteries, it's not perfect. And all along that chain, there's offcuts, there's rejects. Why are there offcuts and rejects? It's for quality reasons, right? Nobody wants to make a product then have to recall it. So the natural part of the process, of course, everybody's aim is to try and minimize scrap over time. But in these intervening nascent incipient years, it's a natural part of the process. So for us, say by 2025, approximately 70% of our feed, and even today, is going to be manufacturing scrap before you have the end of life of batteries, you have this large wave that will come thereafter. So I don't think most people know that, uh, but it's the reason that we have to set up now. It makes plenty part. of sense. Why therefore are your operations in Canada and in my beloved Rochester, New York? Where in Rochester are you? This is for, this is for you know, all three of the, the listeners in Rochester. Actually, we have, we have a concentration <laughs> of listeners in Rochester and strangely in Fairport, New York, outside of Rochester, go Raiders. Um, uh, 
the Red Raiders, of course, is the of course. sports team of the airport high school. Um, so uh, wh- why, why in that area? Yeah, so coming back to that original statement of you want to be close to where battery materials are, which is close to population centers. So if you look at Kingston, Ontario, it's halfway between Toronto and Montreal, which are two of the biggest metropolitan areas uh, within Canada. So it's very well connected logistically. Uh, within the U.S., uh, in the Northeast, you're close to both auto and battery manufacturing facilities uh, as you go slightly west of Rochester, but also, once again, big population center in the Northeast. Well, so west of Rochester, States. specifically, there's, there's a big Tesla battery plant, or, or there are, it was meant to be in, in a, a giant plant in Buffalo, right? Yeah, there's a whole range of different things, not just in, in Buffalo, but if you go out to, towards Michigan and, uh, and even a little bit further west, all that material has the ability to be pulled in. So we look at it as like a basin and we look at like the surrounding areas, we look at what's happening. Similarly, when we decided to build a facility in Arizona, we looked at California, Nevada, Texas as being a pool, a pool area for Arizona. And then our most recent facility being in Alabama, once again, close to a whole range of existing and up and coming uh, automotive battery manufacturing uh, facilities, but also close to big population centers, which are already generating those small format batteries. So uh, as it goes forward, you know, why does this, again, back to timing, why does this start to happen, uh, Ajay, now or in the field? Like what, what's kind of the timing? Because yeah. your, your business has been, as I said, again, very, very small looking backwards. You have a f- magnificent market cap, as, as, as which reflects the market's belief that you're going to do great things. When's it going to happen and why will it happen then? Yeah, and this goes back to my point around manufacturing scrap. So look, what's changed in this market very rapidly is the growth, and I'd almost call it the direction to rebalancing of the world of battery supply and the battery supply chain. We are seeing extremely pronounced growth in North America, Europe. Of course, China has been a big epicenter of lithium batteries for a long time, but the world is starting to, and our customers are starting to really move aggressively and rebalance. With that comes battery manufacturing, with that comes scrap. So in a nutshell, if you believe in electric vehicles, you believe in the lithium battery input to that, you believe in the need for recycling because with that comes scrap as we've been talking about. And so one example of that is LTM, you know, that's a contract with the joint venture between General Motors and LG Energy Solution, that plant's in Ohio, and they're ramping up starting later this year, next year, it's about a year before our large hub facility that Tim was talking about that technology is going to be built in, in Rochester. But that facility will have scrap that it's going to be producing. That's actually what we've contracted for to begin. And as we get to that scale, that centralized hub facility, this really starts to get to larger financial scale. For our business, revenue is driven by tons. EBITDA is ultimately driven by the tons that we process. And that, as people can tell, you'll keep tracking your quarters, is coming up nonlinearly. And why it's growing nonlinearly is because of the fact that this manufacturing base is also growing nonlinearly. So as that continues to pace uh, and go forward, we have to grow in lockstep. And that's happening now and much quicker than we've ever seen. In so it's going to come in chunks. Well, you haven't seen anything yet. Our, you know, to be nice, you know, it's a, it's a very tiny. Well, not us. I mean, so the much. industry. I mean, yeah. the industry. In the industry. Okay. Sorry, to be clear. I mean, we've been dealing with vehicle OEMs for, for a long time. And... It's not easy to get to where we've gone to because you need technology, you need capital, you need the feed, you need the offtake. You have to get all those pieces in place. 
And we've been dealing with, you know, we have 14 vehicle and battery OEM customers, but to be very candid, you know, for a long time, it was the initial needs, say hybrid batteries coming through dealers, you know, maybe damaged, defective, recalled quantities initially. Yeah. But I'd say for the first time in these five years of our history this year, especially, we're seeing this pronounced focus from them on the need for recycling due to scrap from a strategic perspective, because they're worried about getting lithium and nickel and cobalt and these different critical materials. And they want our hub, you know, as we are moving towards to be up and running, which of course implies a lot of great financial benefit, but strategic benefit. So it's, it's very interesting the time they're in, but it's, it was almost like a, a marathon ramp up to the current long-term yeah. sprint, if I put it that way. Okay. Yeah, it looks like it was a, a slog to, to use a mining term. Um, it does, uh, let me ask you finally, so does the, the 15 X improvement in revenue that you saw in their most recent third quarter compared to the quarter, quarter ended at the end of July compared to the previous year, is that really about those big chunks of revenue that you've been able to add in those big chunks of uh, customers you've been able to add in? Yeah. And I'll start to tip shit out. I mean, the bottom line is the more tons we receive, the more we process and the more that's produced and hence revenue. But what's changed is us being for you know for looking a couple of years ago to establish those facilities bring the customers along get the manufacturing scrap contracts we're not in a place where we have to keep up yeah. that's it we have to execute and process and that's what valorizes the associated content and revenue that's right just wanted to add. super interesting company uh I, I, we're gonna we're gonna jump and i do appreciate your time both of you uh ajay uh kochar the ceo and co-founder as with tim johnston uh, also co-founder of LiCycle, L-I-Cycle, interesting company, one we'll certainly keep an eye on. Like I said, the market has given this thing a, a, a big vote of support based on what the results have been thus far. Cool stuff. Uh, and when the drill line continues, I'm going to have a special number that tells you about the state of that company. The number, I'll even tell you the number, I'll tell you what it means in a second, but the number is 2,789,571. What that means will tell you when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on your Amazon smart speaker. All you got to do is look at your, well, you can look away from it if you want to. Say it loud enough, Alexa, play The Drill Down podcast. You will hear The Drill Down podcast on that smart speaker right then. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac, 2,789,571. It's a big number. What's it Not mean? Not necessarily. That's the revenues of this company in the last year. But as I mentioned, growing at a, a fantastic pace. Last quarter, almost 15x return, better than 15x return. But uh, yes, two point, call it $2.8 million in revenues uh, in the last 12 months. Uh, the market's given this company about a $1.8 billion valuation. So clearly a bet on the success uh, impending for this company. We shall see. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. We do appreciate your time. Isaac Webster's our executive producer. Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.